You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. Here's what's ahead this Friday on The Exchange. We're back into growth scare mode. Weak flash PMI data this morning. Snap's digital ad slowdown not helping. Is it a Snap-specific problem or an industry-wide sea change? We'll get an insider's view on how to position now. Plus, more hiring freezes, corporate layoffs, warnings about the low-end consumer. What does it say about whether or not the Fed's inflation fight is working? We'll debate. And three buys in one bail, depending on what kind of slowdown we're heading into. Gina Sanchez joins us with her picks, and Jim Cramer likes them too. We'll reveal the names ahead, but first, let's get to Dom Chu with our numbers. Dom? You've lost some steam, Kelly. Really lost some steam. At the highs of the session, the S&P 500 was up 14 points. It's not a lot, but it's respectable. A solid, decent gain, 14 handles on the S&P. That put us, by the way, above the 4,000 mark. We are now down 37 points. This does represent the session lows, as you can kind of see behind me here. The Dow Industrial is now down 119 points, down about one-third of 1%, 31,917. The Nasdaq Composite Index, 11,837, down 222 points, nearly 2% declines there. And that technology trade that Kelly mentioned, very much a part about it, that underperformance story in the Nasdaq and the technology and comm services sectors. Speaking of... The reason why that sentiment changed, you've got snap shares down 39%, again, hovering near those session lows after some disappointing quarterly results and some user metrics that didn't come up to snuff for some investors and analysts. That's dragging down many of the other larger social media names like Alphabet and Meta Platforms, two of the ones that have the biggest online advertising presences out there. They are taking a hit on that. And then communication services overall down nearly 4%. Twitter is the lone standout here, but you can argue it doesn't really trade on fundamentals on the heels of earnings anymore. We're trying to figure out if Elon Musk is going to end up buying this company or not. So that's a little bit of an aberration, but watch that comm services trade. And then if you're looking for a bright spot, because it's not all gloom and doom around here, check out what's happening with American Express shares. They reported earnings better than expected for profits and sales. Yes, they did set aside a little bit more money to cover possibly bad loans down the line, but they said an interesting point about their kind of higher-end consumer spending clientele. Kelly, for the first time, they've seen spending among their card members back to pre-pandemic levels. So it kind of tells you a little bit something. They also say that they aren't seeing any material signs of weakness yet in their consumer base. We'll see if that sticks. But otherwise, Amex up 2.5%. I will point out, though, that's off-session highs, Kel, with the rest of the market. Back over to you. Fair enough. Dom, thank you very much, our Dom Chu. Well, our slowdown fears taking over from inflation concerns. Let's look back at the data this week before we put that to my next guest. On Monday, we had that terrible read from the home builders, the NAHB index, dropping by the second most in a month ever. Wednesday, June existing home sales falling a much wider than expected 5% versus a less than 1% loss. On Thursday, jobless claims rose by 7,000 to an eight-month high. Leading indicators also slid for the fourth straight month. month. That's typically a harbinger of recession. And today, markets composite U.S. manufacturing and services PMI dropped much more than expected by five points to a reading of just 47. That's well into contraction territory. What does it all mean for the economy? And should the Fed still hike? by 75 basis points again next week. Let's ask Ethan Harris. He's global head of economics research at Bank of America Securities. It's great to see you, Ethan. And the bond market, ironically, is now acting like inflation will prove transitory. Yeah, Uh, I think the story is that it's going to take a 
very, very weak economy to cure the inflation problem. And so the Fed really has to move ahead and continue to hike rates. They're still well below uh, neutral and they need to get above neutral. Um, so the, the data this week, you know, it helps and push things in the right direction from a Fed perspective. Uh, but they still have a lot of work to do. Isn't your call, the, the firm's call, that we're going to be in recession uh, this year? Yeah, I'm actually puzzled, to tell you the truth, why more people aren't forecasting recession. If you look at the consensus, people are expecting modest growth of 1% or so in the next four quarters, and we're looking for minus 1% or so in the next four quarters. The point I've been making is that um, we can't cure inflation in a painless manner. Some of this inflation will come down naturally as commodity prices stabilize and as uh, supply chains improve. So that part of the inflation problem is fixable uh, without a recession. The part that isn't fixable is the absolutely crazy red-hot labor market. The Fed has to see a major weakening of the labor market. Otherwise, we're going to get massive ongoing cost pressures with rising wages. There's no way the Fed can hit their 2% target uh, for inflation in the next few years if they don't significantly cool off the labor market. So most people think, well, if we're going into recession, why do they need to keep hiking? Well, I think it, it hasn't happened yet. I mean, the data are weak. They're very uneven, right? I mean, you're looking to the week, the data this week was kind of uniformly weak. Remember, the housing sector is kind of the point of the spear on monetary policy. When you hike rates, that's the sector that gets hit hardest and fastest. And so there we're seeing the effects of the Fed already. What we're not seeing yet is significant weakening of the jobs market. Now, you, as you pointed out, claims are inching up. But by historic standards, they're way below normal still. They should be up well into the 300s for the Fed to argue that they've gotten the labor market under control. So uh, they need to kind of finish the job and, and keep hiking. If they were to back off now, um, I, I think you would see, uh, I mean, the markets are pricing in those hikes. They're already embedded in the markets. It would be a remarkably surprising easing of financial conditions that's not at all warranted given the inflation outlook. So in other words, you're saying in order to beat inflation kind of for good here, we have to be in recession um, and that the concern is that maybe things don't slow enough. Is that right? Because, again, as the data keep evolving with every additional data point, you get this kind of sardonic reaction of this is the Fed's fault. They're causing this. You know, this is now we're going to go from inflation to recession, just from bad to worse and so forth. Um, obviously, they'd like to achieve a soft landing and slow things down without a recession, I, it sounds like you're just saying that's unrealistic. And to make matters worse, that if they backed off, inflation could stay high even after we have a downturn. And we saw that happen in the 70s. Right. And I think you do want to go back to history. I mean, the mistake the Fed made is not what they're doing now. It's what they didn't do a year ago. It, they waited too long to start hiking interest rates. And now they're playing catch up. Um, the, the inflation readings we've gotten this year have been even worse than we expected. They were already starting to happen last summer and fall. The Fed described it as repeatedly as transitory when it became clear that most of it's transitory, but a big chunk is not. And so they're fixing a mistake. And unfortunately, they have to risk a recession. There's no other way to get the genie back in the bottle. And, and, and I would go back to the 70s and, and give the following uh, analogy. 
What's going on with the Fed right now is not Paul Volcker killing inflation. Paul Volcker stepped in after years of inadequate Fed efforts to control inflation. What we're seeing right now is the Fed at the beginning of the 1970s, when they had a chance to nip it in the bud and tighten and kill a modest inflation problem and, and keep that 2% kind of level for inflation. So the mistake is to not fight the inflation early and wait until it's really out of control. So we are in 1969. We're not 1979. We need a tough Fed, uh, but not a 1982-style collapse in the economy. We need a modest recession to get inflation under control. Final point on this, because communicating it is is a really important part of the story. And the White House is calling this Putin's price hikes. And yes, they're refer referring to gasoline, but that, that embodies the narrative. And it, most people, as a result, think inflation's high because gas prices are high because of Putin. So why yeah. would the Fed react to that? So I understand if the White House doesn't want to come clean and say, this is the Fed's fault, they should have tightened a year ago. And I understand that the Fed doesn't want to get up there and say, this is our fault, we should have tightened a year ago. But by not being that explicit, don't they risk confusing the message and angering Americans? Well, I think the, the problem, of course, with the whole public debate over inflation is it's insanely political. The Biden administration didn't create high gasoline prices. That is partly a Putin story and partly just a global of demand outrunning supply. That's did nothing to do with, or very little to do with the Biden administration. It's a great debate talking point, however, because the American public pins the blame for whatever goes wrong in the economy on the incumbent administration. What is important here and where you can put blame is the super easy fiscal policy combined with a Fed that was way too slow to hit the brakes does explain some of this inflation, not the gas price part, but the parts, the, the broader inflation we're seeing across many goods and services, they do deserve some blame for that. They share some of the blame. And then there's some bad luck that's come with it as well. But uh, the Fed's got no choice here. They, 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 the way they need to market this is it's better to, you know, Better to take some medicine now than take even bigger medicine later. Yeah, or to have a what's been a two-year problem turn into a 15 or 20-year one. Exactly. Ethan, thanks. Exactly. We appreciate it. Good to check in with you. Thank you. Ethan Harris, Bank of America. Let's get to today's disaster stock du jour snap, tumbling 38%. The stock getting more than a dozen downgrades after those disappointing second quarter results. One major headwind, a slowdown in ad spending. Is it a big flag for the rest of the social media peers or just about Snap's weakness? And what does it say about digital ad spending overall? Let's bring in Jason Helfstein of Oppenheimer. He has a market perform on Snap. And Mark Douglas is the CEO of ad agency Mountain. And it's great to have you guys both here. Jason, just a reaction at this point, is it Snap specific or broader uh, digital ad slowdown? We think it's mostly Snap specific. So, um, you know, there are categories that are pulling back, but I think that the other companies you report next week, namely Meta and Alphabet, um, have a much deeper advertiser bench. And so they're just better able to deal if, you know, you do see some pullbacks. But we think the bigger point is that Snap hasn't developed as robust uh, ad products for direct response or performance advertisers. And then they're also seeing pressure from TikTok. Mark, would you agree with that?
I wasn't sure if it was just me not hearing him. Mark, hold your thought for just a second. We'll fix your sound. So, Jason, if you think it is a SNAP-specific problem, would you be a buyer here of the other stocks that are selling off on the weakness? Well, um, we do have to acknowledge, uh, as your prior guest talked about, we are probably going to go into a modest recession. Consumer spending, which has been pretty stable through the summer, is probably going to slow down. So advertising is probably going to slow down. So if you, you know, if you're a longer term investor, um, 12 to 18 months, um, I do think buying uh, particularly Meta here, it's an interesting kind of opportunity. Um, you know, that being said, we do think that there is, is risk to advertising broadly, just not nearly the downside that we saw, for example, in, in Snap or even Twitter, which also reported this morning. Mark, what were you saying? Go ahead. I can expand on that. Actually, on both on both points. So when you look at the overall ad market, you have to divide it in the brand and direct response. And so brand takes tends to take a cut when there's hard times. That's what happened at the start of the pandemic. But direct response actually tends to grow. And so I agree, Meta is likely to do well. Google especially and Amazon's ad business are likely to do well. With Snap, they're facing so many pressures, competition from TikTok, slowing user growth in the US, which has been happening for years, and I think is finally starting to catch up with them. And their ad business is not all direct response, so they're gonna get that brand advertising cut when there are hard times. And that's all, it's like a perfect storm of problems for them, but you don't see that with Google at all and to a less extent with Meta. I was going to ask, so Google, Facebook or, or Meta, those are big beneficiaries of direct response spending. Who else? And, and should we expect that piece of the ad pie to hold up? Um, primarily Amazon. And obviously it's a part of Amazon's overall business. But Amazon the last few years has built a huge direct response ad business. And so they are likely to be a beneficiary also. And so um, that's where you see a TikTok, but TikTok's not a public company. They're probably the fastest growing um, direct response business in the world right now, I would expect would be TikTok. Yeah, it always feels like we're flying a little blind because we can't show their performance, their market cap, you know, all the rest of it in comparison with the other others. Jason, how long do you think this um, ad winter is going to last? Uh, I mean, again, it, it's some of its macro, but I think, you know, most people are thinking you'll start to see a meaningful, you know, or some kind of slowdown in the fourth quarter and into the beginning of next year, obviously very Fed dependent, right? And, and, and other factors. Um, specifically for Snap, um, one of the things that we think they need to fix is the is the attribution that relates to Apple. And so the tool that you use is called SK Ad Network, which Apple just updated, calling it 4.0. Um, it's quite complicated. And our concern is that it will take them longer than the other companies to integrate that into their process. And so does it take them until the third quarter of next year to really kind of write their house? At the same time, there's pressure on them to reduce um, headcount and spending. And so, you know, it's going to be tricky to keep rowing forward while at the same point, you know, kind of kicking people out of the boat. And finally, Mark, if this does last uh, through the third quarter of next year, as Jason is indicating, do you have any advice for Snap or for other investors who are kind of looking around and saying, OK, well, if brands are going to be pulling back for quite some time, I mean, are there any opportunities here? 
Well, I mean, it's just the theme of this conversation, which is direct response. It pretty much always does well. If you go all the way back to 2000, Google, that's when Google grew into be, you know, people first became aware of them. This huge direct response business, they had already started to grow. So it's essentially double down on these big performance advertising companies, Google, Meta and others, and, you know, just kind of hold back on on brand and you'll tend to do well in this kind of climate. Very interesting. I appreciate the thoughts there, guys. Thank you both, Mark Douglas and Jason Helfstein on Snap, down 38%. All right, a news alert for you. Baker Hughes reporting moments ago that U.S. oil and gas rig count this week rose for the third straight week. It's often an early indicator of future output. It rose to the highest level since March 2020. There you can see the WTI price relatively unbothered. It's down about a quarter percent. We're at 96 uh, for WTI crude going negative on that news. Coming up, if the Fed is about to hike again, should you bet on the banks? My next guest has some names she's scooping up ahead of next week's big meeting. Plus, whether you're expecting a mild, moderate, severe recession or no recession at all, we've got picks for every scenario in a special edition of Three Buys and a Bail. As we head to break, here's a quick check on the markets. The Dow is down half a percent, the S&P down one percent, the Nasdaq down two percent. Uh, the Russell 2000 is kind of splitting the difference and the 10-year yield 277. We're back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Ahead of next week's Fed meeting and despite dropping yields and recession worries, our next guest says the financial sector is the place to be. It's had a rough year. The XLE down about 16 percent. The regional bank ETF down 13 percent. So where's the opportunity? Joining us now is Cheryl Pate, portfolio manager at Angel Oak Capital Advisors. And Cheryl, the names that you like here have had very different years. Signature down 47 percent. South State almost positive. Yeah, that's right. I, I think when we think about the opportunity set, especially looking forward post um, what has been a better than expected earnings season across the board for the banks, where we see particular value are names that are poised to benefit from higher rates. Um, again, looking for the Fed to to raise fairly aggressively here again next week as well. And that loan, the, the difference between the loan yield and the deposit cost just continues to widen out for these banks, driving up their profitability. Um, we, we would really have a preference on the smaller end of the scale. Um, regionals, but really even more the community banks, the, the sort of the South states, the pinnacles that tend to beat on earnings, have very strong deposit franchises and a lot of leverage to rising rates. Yeah. So pinnacle still is down 18 percent this year, as I mentioned, South state uh, just fractionally. So why do you think that they aren't being rewarded for the execution that you see and think is coming? I do think there's been, you know, probably more concern in the regional space that is, you know, a little bit more well covered, more trafficked by um, sell side analysts, for example, um, and, and more in the forefront. But a lot of the concern that we've seen probably on, on someone like a signature and, and even Pinnacle it sort of relates to consumer exposure um, and signature specifically sort of that their crypto endeavors. I think a lot of that has been well put into the price at this point um, and the upside and what's really going to move the needle is how they deliver on NIM expansion, loan growth and managing expenses. Um, a lot of what we've seen in terms of similarities between, um, again, sort of a South, uh, South Street and um, Pinnacle is successful acquisition history as well. And as expenses have become a larger part of this, the narrative here, 
Um, I think M&A is going to ramp back up and, and, and banks that have done well and have a good track record of, of successfully um, acquiring uh, sort of geographically adjacent companies, I think um, adds a little additional upside to our estimates. Um, a name like Signature, I think, you know, consistently um, beats on earnings, strong deposit franchise. And actually what we really like there is the amount of non uh, interest bearing deposits, which are zero cost of funds for them. Right. So the NIM expansion is likely to be larger. No, it's interesting to hear the case for Signature that is uh, sort of ex-crypto. <laughs> and for so yeah. long, it was either because of crypto, uh, people liked it or wanted to avoid it. So for those in the audience who are listening and say, all right, sounds like all this makes sense and, and these banks have a lot of opportunity, and, and but I'm worried about the economy. I mean, do you think they've priced in a recession already or not? And if, if not, could you wait six months? I think a lot of the banks today in general are pricing in recessionary environments where we look at valuations relative to even, um, you know, prior down cycles and the financial crisis, for example, um, a lot of the downside feels baked into us at current multiples. Um, and in fact, what we saw coming out of earnings is uh, the bias is upwards in terms of earnings expectations. So we should see at least some stability as we get comfortable with the macro backdrop on on somewhat higher earnings. So I think the the opportunity set is really coming up in the near term here. All right, Cheryl, uh, we'll leave it there. Thanks for your time and for your thoughts today. Thank you. Cheryl Pate with Angel Oak. For more on the markets, tune in tonight at 6 p.m. Eastern for a CNBC special, Politics and Profit, exploring issues at the intersection of money and government. Uh, and that's where everything intersects. Uh, from inflation in the Fed to that debate we were having with Ethan Harris a short time ago, that funding for the CHIPS Act, uh, and all the ways the midterms could impact your portfolio. Again, 6 p.m. Eastern tonight. Still ahead here, the ProShares online retail ETF is 20% off its recent lows, and more than half these stocks are up at least 10% this month. Are fundamentals actually improving, or is this just another fad? Plus the $10 trillion tipping point. If this is the end of affordable energy, what does it mean for companies and investors? And as we head to break, take a look at the Dow, erasing a 182-point gain to turn negative by a 2-to-1 ratio. Amex still on top after its earnings beat and record card spending. Verizon having its worst day since 2008. It's the worst stock in the Dow after cutting its full-year forecast, saying higher prices are hurting phone subscriber growth. The shares after yesterday's decline down another 7%. We're back after this. Welcome back, everybody. Mirror image of what we saw this morning. The Dow had been up 182. Now we're down 188. We're at session lows with the S&P down 1.2%. And the Nasdaq, which had been leading the charge this week, down 2% today. Gold prices are higher, though, and they're set to snap a five-week losing streak as yields drop and the dollar pulls back a bit. We're still around 1,700 an ounce. Schlumberger is today's top energy stock after they beat estimates on the top and bottom line. Raising revenue guidance for the year said so the second quarter was an inflection point. Shares up 4% on what's been strong year-to-date performance. And finally, crypto climbing again today as they cap off a big week. Bitcoin and Ether both higher. Bitcoin to almost back at 23,000. Ether uh, 1572. Coinbase, though, still down 6%, uh, back to around $69 a share. And speaking of crypto, FTX CEO Sam Bankman Fried will be on closing bell at 3 p.m. Eastern Time today. Now to Bertha Coombs for a CNBC News update. Bertha? Hey, Kelly, thanks very much. 
In Florida, jurors are hearing evidence on whether Parkland school shooter Nicholas Cruz should be sentenced to death or life in prison without a chance of parole for killing 17 people four years ago. Today, they heard from one of the first police officers on the scene. A 17-year-old accused of fatally shooting four students at a high school in Michigan last November participated in a video hearing today where the judge decided he should remain in a county jail rather than a juvenile detention center as he awaits his January trial. And the jury in Steve Bannon's contempt of Congress trial began its deliberations about two hours ago after hearing closing arguments this morning. And tonight on the news, a Czech prince who is trying to save the royal family's art collection by selling NFTs. That's at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Sounds like a really intriguing story. The monarchy, something old and something very new. Absolutely. Constantly reinventing. Uh, Bertha, thank you very much, Bertha Coombs. Still ahead, my next guest says Netflix's pain has been this stock's gain. It also happens to be her top pick for a mild recession. But what if there isn't a recession or what if it's severe? She's got picks for that, too. A special edition of Three Buys and a Fail is next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Recession fears continue to swell as inflation soars to four-decade highs, and we see cracks in the labor market. But there's no consensus on the size or scope of a potential downturn. So how should investors plan ahead? Joining us now is CNBC contributor Gina Sanchez. She's chief market strategist at Lido Advisors, and she has today's three buys into bail. Gina, welcome. All right, let's Thank start you. with the deep recession scenario and just get this one out of the way. Your pick for that? Constellation. It's down just 3% this year. They had better than expected earnings last month. And well, people think booze is kind of recession proof. You like it? I do like it. And actually, I like it even more than some of the pure single brand plays because they're a little more diversified. And we've seen already the stress test is already on the books. They can defend in a downturn. Um, and we've also seen them increasing profitability. I mean, the big concern with a lot of these brands is what do you do? You know, how do you deal with with rising prices? But they have managed to do that. They've you know, they've branched into seltzers. They're now getting into to recreational marijuana. So we have all sorts of choices uh, for for a, a deep recession, depression kind of uh, scenario that involves booze and pot. Oh, goody. The, to be clear, <laughs> is this one of those where we know if there's a deep recession? I don't think that's priced in at this point. You think no. all these you know, stocks go down, but you're looking for relative outperformers. Is that the idea? Uh, yeah, that's that is the idea. I mean, we're looking for companies that can deal with because uh, we have a recession with inflation. We have not had that in most of our investing histories, uh, un unless you're you know up there. And so you know, at the end of the day, we need we need companies that can manage their costs, um, whose brand is durable, and who will continue to sell um, product so that you can survive the the tumult. All right. So your next pick is for a mild recession. If you're in this camp, think that's what's going happen. You actually picked Disney, which has been, it feels like, in a mild recession of its own. You know, Disney has definitely taken its lumps through the pandemic. Closing down the parks was an enormous hit to Disney. Um, you know, everything to do with sports hit ESPN+. Plus. So they really kind of took it on all sides, um, closing down all of the uh, studios as well. So they, there was just not a lot going on. And, you know, Bob Chapek was really having a trial by fire as a new CEO um, at Disney as well. However, we now have the parks open. They just reopened Shanghai, Disney. The parks are already kind of starting to normalize in terms of their numbers. 
numbers. They're growing like gangbusters again. Um, and obviously that will normalize. But the point is, these are probably some of the most incredibly profitable components of Disney. And they've upped their pricing with absolutely no response in terms of demand, which is to say that Disney has incredible pricing power. All right. That, uh, and on t yep, yeah. go ahead. And on top of that, Disney Plus is, a, is still growing uh, subscribers while Netflix is losing subscribers. And they have ES, the ESPN Plus Hulu bu uh, bundle, which right now nobody has. And that was sort of the cable story. <laughs> right. Well, I hear some buzz about it. Uh, so that's your mild recession pick. Disney is. Now let's turn. If you don't expect a recession, if you're in that camp, Gina, then you say the pick is J.B. Hunt. Tell us why. Yeah, so we have J.B. Hunt Transport. Lido has owned this uh, in, in several of our portfolios. And this story is really one where J.B. Hunt Transport is obviously a company that benefits when people are, are buying goods, demanding goods, and you need to transport those goods. And obviously a big part of the story lately has been what happens in the supply chain. J.B. Hunt has managed to, to, to increase their profitability. Demand is off the charts. So you're like, wow, is there really a recession coming? Um, but even in a recession, they've actually done incredibly well this year. So, you know, on a relative basis, I mean, nobody did well this year, but on a relative basis, they performed. And, and from our perspective, uh, from a valuation perspective, we think that this is a way to uh, invest in a good company that can control its costs, but also might participate in the upside if we're all wrong. All right. Well, in the stock to bail on, which that brings us to drum roll, please. Uh, which you don't seem to like that much, regardless of what exact kind of slowdown we're heading into. General Electric, tell us why. So, you know, General Electric got really cheap for a while, and it was attractive when, you know, it was at a really low valuation. But that valuation gap really went away as everybody was buying anything that looked like value. And General Electric looks like value, smells like value. Um, but it doesn't necessarily um, perform well in a, in, in a recession because, you know, the industrials are really going to get hit. Um, and they're in aviation. They're in, I mean, maybe the healthcare part of what they're doing uh, might be somewhat resilient. But, you know, they're most of the GE, you know, brand is going to be hit in a recessionary scenario. So, you know, this is a company that already is going through a lot of, of, of you know, figuring itself out strategically. So we think we stay away from that if we actually go into a deeper recession than expected. All right. We'll leave it there. But with what little time we have left, Gina, you get to take a quick victory lap on Snap because I almost associate you single handedly with bailing on Snap in pretty much every edition of this that we've done. Yes, I, I definitely took a few victory laps on that one, Kelly. Not to dance <laughs> on any graves here. Thank you for my victory lap. <laughs> yeah, got to give credit where credit's due. Gina, thank you very much. Have a great weekend. Thank you, Kelly. Gina you too. Gina Sanchez. Coming up, check out this mystery chart. Up nearly 4% this week, and there could be a sector-wide uptrend emerging. The name and whether now is the time to jump in. That's next. Welcome back, everybody. Want to mention, with all the slowdown fears taking hold, that high-yield bond funds actually climbed this week as stocks largely were rallying. Seema Modi is here now. What's behind these outside moves, yeah, Seema? Yeah, Kelly, we have stocks rebounding, bonds rallying as well. Uh, the 10-year yield went from... 3% to now 2.8. That is certainly significant. And it's all coinciding with this risk on tone in the broader market. Plus, credit spreads are narrowing. Bleakley Advisory Group pointing out that the spread between high yield debt 
and Treasuries was 530 basis points last Friday. Now it's down to 485 basis points. So what we're seeing is a compression in spreads. Bank of America economists this morning calling it an incredible turnaround. And after months of selling off, high-yield junk bond ETF is now on track for a three-week winning streak. The first time we've seen this type of outperformance since June of 2021. And as yields fall, check out the emerging market debt ETF now up about 3% in the past four days as the dollar comes off its high. The dollar index, Kelly, down five in the past six sessions. True, true. I didn't thought about that as an input. So is this yeah. durable? I mean, where are we kind of by historical standards in terms of where spreads are and, and what good macro outcomes we need to keep this going? It really depends on the macro, what the Fed does next week. We spoke to Joanna Gallagos, the founder of Bond Block. She talks about how the rally in treasuries is certainly providing confidence to the market. She also pointed out uh, that high-yield investors continue to have outsized cash positions. Hmm. She says that's a hopeful sign, but uh, the macro position will be certainly uh, top of mind. Jim Bianco says that if high yield crypto and equities can all rally at the same time, that would bode well. That certainly would improve market sentiment. Uh, but to your point, the economy mixed session, mixed data we've pointed out. Well, PMI data this morning, 26 month low. Exactly. And yes, the market's turning today. But it's funny that all three of those things you mentioned have all been happening this week, even as the data has pretty much gotten worse. So we'll watch for those signs. Maybe it's been priced in. Uh, maybe. Seema, thank you very much. Our Seema Modi. Up next, direct-to-consumer names mixed bag today, but they've had a monster run. Is there a bubble in bird? Is Etsy heading into the ether? Whether to buy into the positive momentum after this quick break. And let's take a look at the major averages with session lows across the board now. The Nasdaq leading those declines down two and a quarter percent. Lucid, Meta, Datadog, and Align, some of the biggest underperformers. We're back in a moment. Welcome back to The Exchange. Check out some of this performance. The direct-to-consumer stocks are having a monster month. The ProShares online retail ETF up more than 11%. Names like Stitch Fix, Allbirds, and Figs well off their lows. Figs up about 46%. Courtney Reagan is here now to explain what's driving this action. What do you think's going on, Court? Hi there, Kelly. You know, it's unlikely these stocks are on fire because consumers are buying in mass on these sites. I mean, the latest retail sales report did show strong growth in the non-store, the online category, and the consumer certainly hasn't cracked under the macroeconomic pressures, at least not yet. But it's likely more about momentum than fundamentals. These names are among those that fell harder, faster on those big down days that we've seen recently. So when sentiment turns even slightly positive, this is the group that tends to bounce back higher and faster. Look at Etsy, up 35% so far in July, still off about 68% from its 52-week highs, though. Allbirds up 30%. 84% below its 52-week high. Chewy and the parent of high-end apparel e-commerce site My Teresa, those are both up about 26% so far this month. But Chewy is worth about half what it was a year ago. My Teresa is about 60% below its year-ago value. Stitch Fix up 23% in July. And then king of the online jungle, Amazon, up more than 15% month-to-date. This is ahead of results but 35% off those 52-week highs. Now, these online companies might end up being a good trade if you can time it right, but just be aware, Kelly, the moves here aren't necessarily in connection to major fundamental shifts that have pushed them to the levels that we see today. Exactly what I was going to ask. I mean, some of these names got so small, Courtney, we, were, we weren't even able to talk about them. <laughs> 
Exactly, exactly. Names that, you know, I think we all know well potentially as consumers and that were big IPOs, but are really well below that $500 million market cap now because they sold off so substantially. And we couldn't even talk about them. Maybe they'll swing back as this momentum starts to move and they'll get sort of back into this trading space where it feels appropriate for us to discuss them. But the moves here, Kelly, and some of these direct-to-consumer online names, names that really many, many people in America know have just been so incredibly dramatic. It's almost really hard to understand why they move the way they move, but it's our job at least to point it out when it happens. Yeah, absolutely. Courtney, thank you very much for that, our Courtney Reagan. And although online retail has roared back this month, most of these names are still way down year to date. And our next guest warns investors to proceed with caution. Let's bring in Jan Niffen, the CEO of J. Rogers Niffen Worldwide. Jan, do you have any idea if there's a fundamental turn here or is it, you know, just one of these kind of trading guessing games? Well, you know, I looked at the rest of the 38 stocks in the online ETF, like Revolve, Wafer, Real Real, Land's End. They're all up this month 15 to 25%. They're all down 55 to 85% for the year. So what does that tell you? It tells you it's the group. I had this thesis that it was the return trade, right? That everybody went, oh my gosh, COVID's back. We're not going to get the return to work, the return to play, the return to do things trade. And so these stocks traded off. And then when I looked at all the rest of them, I said, nope, a lot of these guys aren't in that category and their stock charts look very, very much the same. Yeah. Now, the ones that rebounded the most, however, are part of that return to doing things trade. And I think some of that, therefore, is probably overreaction on the COVID side. I mean, after all, the consumer's now looking at COVID and going, oh, that scary monster that used to be out there, it's now more like an annoying coyote in my yard. I don't want to pet it, but I also am not going to stay in the house because of it. So the consumer's out doing things, and when they do that, they buy things. So, so things like the Real Real or Etsy or any of those that work with that consumer, and remember, that consumer's younger and more affluent than the average consumer. So they're going to buy stuff and do things as long as they can. But I do think that what we're seeing here, I don't want to call it the dead cat bounce. I, I was thinking that. The, yeah. I'm already down 85% bounce, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so any reaction at all that's positive, and you know, Goldman came out and they gave a positive rating to uh, Rent the Runway and then were some insider buys. People watched that and they say, well, the guys that run them look like they're going to be playing the game. So maybe I should too. But boy, you know, I remember the crash of 2000. I remember when Amazon was $8 a share. And there's a simple rule. And that's when interest rates are low, narratives rule. Hmm. The company with the best story wins. When interest rates are rising and growth is slowing, value wins. Companies have to show what they're worth by generating profits and free cash flow. And that is not this group. And it wasn't that group in 2000 either. Sure. So do I think it's different this time? Yeah, probably not. Money's expensive. Funding's drying up. Valuations are greater. It's the same game we were playing in those days. Let me ask you a broader story, Jan, because we have heard sort of two different things from um, the big companies reporting earnings on the consumer. On the one hand, they're saying, you know, uh, consumers are starting to have trouble paying their bills, you know, especially the low-income households. On the other hand, we're hearing them say, actually, spending's holding up uh, pretty well, or it's up 30% year-on-year. Um, what do you think is the state of the U.S. consumer this summer? I think if you're in the top three quintiles, top 60%, you're doing fine. And that's why people like Allbirds can say things like, the consumer's fine. And 
That's you know one of the ones that have bounced here. Or Etsy could say that. However, the bottom two quintiles, the bottom 40%, they don't look so good. So when you're talking to the, well, the off-price guys, when you're talking to the dollar stores, when you're talking to Walmart, they'll say, we're seeing some resistance from that consumer to price and inability to spend. And if you talk to the banks, they'll tell you they're seeing problems with credit, but not the kind of problems we've seen in the past with credit. So yeah, we're seeing some breaks in the system, but so far the consumer seems really, really healthy and they're still sitting on a lot of cash. And right now they still all have a job and they're still out there spending because I'm telling you, they have decided I'm gonna go do stuff and I'm going to buy stuff to take with me when I'm going places. And I guess and they're still doing that. Last question then, because we know that the labor market is still very strong. Wage income, especially non-supervisory income, very, very strong. We're talking six to seven percent. So who would you bet on for the back half of the year? What you're describing sounds like stay away from low income, bet on high income. But what if wage momentum proves stronger than expected? Well, if wage momentum proves stronger and we're not really going to have even a technical recession and we're not going to get any increases that 3.6% is not going to go to 4% unemployment or we used to think it was going to go down to 3.2% unemployment, remember? And we thought we'd have 7% growth in, in wages. So depending on what happens there, you'll be right or wrong on who you should bet on. But I'm betting on luxury stocks. Hmm. And I think that near luxury stocks like Capri and Tapestry and Levi and those kind of people are going to do well. And I think LVMH and Gucci, or Gucci Caring are going to do really well. So I'm betting on that upper 60%, not the bottom group. But certainly, I wouldn't bet against Target. They deal with a fairly affluent consumer, and they've gotten hammered. Their consumer is going to be there. Yeah. Um, I'm a big Walmart fan, but their consumer is struggling a little bit. But, it, but they execute better than anybody else. So when you're looking at that, it's not these companies we're talking about as far as direct consumer. It's the big players that have been strong and reinvested in the business. It's the Costco's of the world. Yep. They're going to have pretty good numbers unless something really happens to the consumer here that I don't see so far. All right. Jan, good to check in with you. We'll leave it there for now. Thanks. Jan Niffin, J. Rogers Niffin Worldwide. Speaking of retail, check out shares of GameStop sliding today after the company's four-for-one stock split. The stock closed around 153 yesterday, opened today around 38 after the split. It's down to around 36 right now. The shares are up 15% this month, though, and on pace to snap a three-month losing streak. Still ahead, oil and gas have spiked this year, and those high prices could be here to stay. Why decades-long run of affordable energy is coming to an end. That's next. Welcome back. One little thing to mention before we go. The end of affordable energy as we know it. Nat gas futures have spiked another 18% this week, up to 8 dollars and 30 cents per million BTUs. And imagine what the price is over in Europe. It's far from the only driver of high prices, though. Pippa Stevens is here now with the story. Pippa? That's right, Kelly. It's not just Nat Gas. Oil and coal prices are surging as well, which is a major driver of the decades-high inflation we're seeing around the world. Russia's war has pushed up prices, but they were already rising prior to the invasion. Years of underinvestment means not enough was spent to either meet fossil fuel demand or to move the world to renewables. Barclay summarized all of this by saying, quote, decades of un uninterrupted affordable energy have come to an end. Now, consumers worldwide set to spend a record $10 trillion this year on energy consumption. That's according to the IEA, an equivalent to about 10 percent of GDP. 
Looking forward, we're hearing more about an all-of-the-above approach to energy policy as countries look to shore up their supplies. Now, transforming the system will take decades and cost $150 trillion, according to Barclays. And in the meantime, clean energy spending on track for a record year as well. In the U.S., some of the largest players are Clearway Energy, AES, and NextEra. And then with fuel prices surging, there are also companies that help manage energy spending. That includes Amoresco, Honeywell, and Johnson Controls, because, Kelly, these bills are high for consumers and businesses alike. When you say manage energy, are we talking thermostats, that kind of thing, or something much grander? Exactly. Like building management systems that help you be aware of your heating and cooling, your lights. I mean, think about an office building that has all of its lights on at 2 a.m. You don't need that. So these companies can help other companies understand their energy usage to optimize. That is a great angle in this market. Pippa, thank you very much, our Pippa Stevens. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.